Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 21st of December 2020. So we've got to Christmas and our last podcast of the year, which I'm sure you don't mind us having a little break from that for a couple of weeks. Let's start with oilseed rape prices. They're finally, they've been jumping around a little bit recently. Soybeans broke the $12 mark and it's heading for 13 I think there's a big crush volume in the U.S., They've had some rain in Brazil, but still very dry in Argentina. It had a technical sell-off on rapeseed, we think. We believe it now looks strong. So that's an upward-moving market. There's a good start, isn't it, the last week of a horrid year. Biofuel market fears resurging COVID. Ian Webster's written on his note here, whatever that means. Anyway, 360x again. Happy days. Let's move on to a not-quite-so-healthy one, the barley market. Lost a lot of its gusto, if you like. The people who were buying for boats in the new year seem to have pulled out or not so keen. The market has definitely dropped two or three quid off from there. If there is a hiccup in exporting in the new year due to the potential no deal, I don't know the detail of that. and I can't be bothered to really kind of look for you, I'm afraid. All I can report is the market. Our instinct on barley is it can't go down far because of the discount it is to wheat. There is going to be a greater inclusion within the grist, which we know. There's still some barley to be traded. My fear is there's too much barley and the malting side of things is not healthy. There's simply not going to be pubs open if they ever open again, some of them. And obviously with less consumption of malting barley, that creates a bigger stock of feed. And the feed barley, as we go into next year, we want it all to be gone if we possibly can. So as we go through the spring, if there are export cargoes going to third countries, then let's all support it and get the damn stuff out. Let's empty the cupboard, everybody. If the cooperative sector worked properly here, they could make sure that they ditched every single stock and we started the new year with nil, and then prices would have a healthier start to the next season. But it doesn't particularly go well with consumers. They don't like that. But if you're able as farmers to work together, that would be a kind of reasonable tactic. And in my view, ditch it, get it out, sell it. You know, 140 is 20 quid better than harvest was. So you'd probably make 41, 42x for Jan. That would be your value. Feed wheat, everybody's favourite. I asked Ben to write a couple of things down because I really literally ran in the office this morning and wanted to do the Christmas address to the nation and not let them do it because I'm a bit like that egotistical git. Basically, there's lots of imports of milling wheat come in. uh, There's lots of high protein being blended with our lower protein stuff. So the millers have done a good job importing. The feed consumers probably haven't done enough, which is why the whole feed market is firm. and We don't know that. So milling wheat, I think the premiums aren't going to be that dynamic for a while. There certainly seems to be plenty of class one milling wheat around and plenty of stock. There's a 20 quid premium, but it's not that easy to sell. There's a big stock of it that's coming from abroad. So milling wheat, there's plenty of it. Feed wheat, that to me is the most complex one. The interesting thing to me is the mindset of the people who grow the stuff. The farmer is in a very strange place, in my opinion, with what they're doing with their marketing. If we have got enough wheat in this country, 
it will only show itself in April, May, June, July. That's when it's going to go, oh, yes, here's a bit left. As we go into the New Year's, we go through the Christmas weeks. Let's just be a little... I think I mentioned this in the farm chat we have in a minute. I've got a very good friend of mine, Lewis Bohr, who is doing the farm chat with me. It's a bit of a long one, but it's, it's nice and it's really relaxed and it's a kind of nice end to the year, a, a sensible person on our podcast, albeit he's with me. Yeah, I have a bit of an issue. I've got farmers saying they've had a tough year and they're closing down today, right? 18th of December. It's only fair, we work so hard. Just be careful how many people you say that to, all right? That's my little advice to you. One, it's a logistical nightmare for the whole of the grain industry that is trying to supply millers, consumers with grain when farmers say, oh, no, all the boys are on holiday, they deserve it. Okay, what about the rest of the world who are still working? All right, you're not represented like the teachers on the radio all the time telling us how hard they have to work. But farm workers, 18th of December, all the way through to January... And not loading lorries, farmers. I mean, are you shooting every day or are you socialising every day? Surely you're going to be driven nuts by your missus or something and say, yeah, do you know what, I wouldn't mind getting out there and doing a job and having a bit of martyrdom for a minute. Oh, I'm working, you know. Go and get the loader out and load the damn thing yourself. But please, can some people phone us up and say, yeah, we'll help you. I will sell you some wheat for this week or the week in between Christmas Day and New Year. Because bluntly... Can you honestly believe yourselves when you say you're going to have two weeks off and you've had a tough year? Anyway, all right. How to Lose Customers by Andrew Dewing. It's a new book. Moving back to the selling of the stuff, I don't see the mindset of farmers coming in on January the 1st and anyone selling it unless it's an exceptional price. And I think as we go through Christmas with less people trading, the market in some of recent years has been bullied by very few lots, someone's given it a shove upwards or downwards. I can't see that. I can't see anybody coming in and selling the backside off wheat during the Christmas week because it doesn't make sense to go short of it because you can't get farmers to sell it to you and you can't import stuff to replace it at the current levels. And as I record this, we've had Barnier and Johnson saying no deal looks probable. Now, no deal means weaker pound, which means it'll be more expensive to import stuff. So... I believe we will see feed wheat prices still firming as we go into the new year. And I don't see any farmer with that piece of information and the trade, the way they supply information to farmers, keeping them well informed. I don't see anybody really selling the backside of it. Unless someone says, here you go, mate, here's 200 or here's 195 or something for Jan. You know, something really big is going to bring a big volume out. I just don't believe that there's enough energy or people just can't be bothered i'll do it later i'll put it off i'll think of something else is what's going on we've got people you know still plowing after sugar beet pressing and putting seed into the ground wheat seed going in the ground right now that's what they're happy to think about they might get bored over christmas and think a little bit about grain trading but predominantly i think jan and feb is going to be a really sparse time for getting your hands on the stuff that's my argument for it remaining firm in the near future so From a price perspective, it's a bullish sign-off on our podcast for this year. I would like to say right now, thank you for all of those who listen regularly. We haven't hit a 1,000, I'll confess to that, but we're in the late hundreds, which is, like, amazing. So, And I haven't got that many family members, so it isn't just me and my immediate people I've forced to listen to it. So whoever is the insomniacs or the listeners that regularly tune in to us, thank you very much. We will endeavour to try and remain original, if you like, and do what we're doing and hope it still keeps hitting a chord with you all. So have a fabulously relaxing...
Christmas, have a time where you don't see anybody and, and then go and polish that loader and load some wheat for us. Anyway, with that, happy Christmas and see you in 2021. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. Right, today I've got with me Lewis Bohr, who I've known for about 104 years. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Andrew. And when did we first meet? Nearly 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Was it rugby before Nita said or was it Nita said before rugby? Um, it wasn't rugby because when I first met you, you were still a footballer. Yeah, I was 25 and I was renovating the house. Luckily for you, two doors down from where you lived. Exactly. Yeah, I moved in, knocked all the ceilings out and spent the winter there, didn't I? You did indeed. <laughs> I used to come to your house to get warm or go at the Barton Angler. Exactly. And, um, you know, even in those early days, you <laughs> forced into giving. <laughs> but I'd like to think, for what it's worth, that all these years later, there's been moments where there are young people just setting up for the first time that I've had the opportunity to help. And, uh, you know, in, in little things, which to them at that moment when they can't have a bath or something is big. But, you know, I'm, I understand the dynamic of it and I've been able to pass on. The only thing I won't do is obviously lend my lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's based on some sort of experience, I believe, Andrew. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Uh, what, that, what that means is that I could afford to get the garden kind of ploughed over and I could afford the grass seed, but I couldn't afford the lawnmower. And luckily, my new friend Lewis <laughs> had a brand new Honda, fabulous lawnmower that was like the bee's knees in lawnmowers. And he kindly let me borrow it. <laughs> And being a cra- grain trader and not an agriculturalist, you hadn't stone-picked your new lawn, had you? Or rolled it? It would have been better if you and Fran went out when I was grass-cutting. <laughs> because, yeah, I did catch the odd stone with it, I'll, I'll confess. <laughs> Sorry, I, it's just tickled me. That's got straight into it. Yeah, anyway, so Lewis, unfortunately for him, is a very generous and kind person and he did genuinely keep helping me out of muddles and at that time I was, I stretched everything to buy the house and I was getting it done up just before I got married and uh, yeah, it was a bit tough financially for me and, and yeah, the lawn and the lawnmower, I, I have felt guilty a lot of times about it since, just that helps you. <laughs> I hope you still got it, it's still running I hope. Uh, it was stolen. <laughs> was it? Yes. Oh, well, that's all right then. They've, they've got a dodgy one with lots of scrapes on it, haven't they? Anyway, I, that's an aside. So so Lewis and I were near neighbours. There's one chap in between us who didn't like me renovating the house in the middle of the night. And Lewis was the forgiving, nice, kind local neighbour. Um, anyway, I was grain trading and we kind of came across each other where I said, you know, how about selling me some corn, Lewis? And you thought, no, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> but we started trading probably around then, I think. 
Did I say Delgetti? Yeah, it was Delgetti. So it I mean, I knew Laurie really well, and obviously he's a neighbour with the other side of the river. But yeah, so I think we met via him, via mm. the... Actually, I remember very vividly, um, we'll get serious about farming in a minute, but this is just to set the paces for my own memory here. I can remember being in the Barton Angler one night when Tony Ridley and Herman came in the pub and they said, ah, oh, we've just put the car in the ditch. They'd just driven from Ramworth Molsters or somewhere and they decided to go on a bit of a pub crawl back in the day when they, these things happened and uh, they put their car in the ditch and this is like 10 o'clock on a Thursday night. I remember it well. They, we, well, they basically tapped you up to come and get your tractor from, you know... And, uh, get, drag them out of the ditch. <laughs> drag you milking cows getting up at four in the morning, they've probably gone to bed and, like, dragged out, and you came and pulled the car out and then came down the pub and said hi, and I, that's a lasting memory. So, yeah, those were the good old days. Anyway, so the thing I wanted to talk to you on the farming side first was about the demise of dairy, and because you were very much a dairy herd, and Fran, your wife, was a nutritionalist and, and was in the industry. You know, talk me through the whole process. Go way back then, it was profitable, I guess, and somewhere in between the two, it just went down the pan. What happened? Dairy is like any other sector in agriculture. Cyclical um, periods of profitability, less profitability. I think with dairying, with it being a highly perishable product, it was more prone to that. We're, as an industry, we're, we're weak from a point of we're price takers. Um, and the periods between higher profitability stretched apart. And we went through a period where the industry started restructuring. We were losing up to 10% at worst. 10%, about 1,800 milk producers per annum. Mm. Um, we were heavily committed to dairying, as you rightly say. Fran took over the management. All the breeding and feeding decisions were, were Fran's. She came back from the industry in '95 and, and took the herd to a level where it hadn't been previously. Uh, a late Uncle Jim Nicholson established the pedigree prefix and developed that side of it for 30 years before he died prematurely. Um, but we became more aware of the fact that we were working harder, turning money round, not making a great deal of profit and, and there was very limited opportunity for reinvestment. And that erodes confidence when it comes to, to borrowing. Throw in there that we have no succession planning because we don't have a family. So we started to analyse the business and we looked at the dairy in particular. And although I'd been a Holstein Breed Society trustee for eight years and we were very much focused on individual cow production, I mean, you, it was a passion of both of you, wasn't it? It was, it was a- yeah. Yeah, we, we showed cattle as a pastime, mm. um, and it was a way of life, basically. But we soon became aware that as profitability fell, farming has so many different ways of achieving the same outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's sheep farming, arable farming, there's different systems, there's different ways of doing it. And dairying has always been like that. But what we had was a narrowing of the systems that would actually consistently show a profit in that economic climate. And where we were based in the east, lower rainfall, on permanent pastures which were environmentally sensitive peat marshes, short grazing season lower rainfall, the system had moved away from profit or margin per cow to margin per hectare, less intensive, um, less yield per cow, more yield per hectare. And that system wouldn't fit on our farm. And to try and fit it in there, there would be some income foregone because we'd have had to brought arable land into grass production to extend the season. So someone said to me, in a nutshell, why did you go out of cows? And I said, other than having the wrong breed of cow in the wrong system, on the wrong soil type, on the wrong side of the country, everything was okay. <laughs> and what we've seen is a migration of dairy farming, either the ones that have remained have had to scale up massively, yeah. 
but the general trend has been migration of milk production north, but particularly to the west, yeah. where soil types, rainfall, grazing season suit that sort of and, lay input and, system. And that's where it's going to stay for, forever, you think? Uh, it, yes, because the capital investment commitment to dairying, uh, it would have to be massively profitable to get people to reinvest and go back in. So, so what, what happens to the marshes in East Anglia now? You know, you've got the, the, the marshes here, you've got the, all of the stuff through Ludham, you've got the, you know, Halvergate marshes. What, what do we do with all of that grass? Well, it's principally beef. Mm-hmm. It's in most instances, it's too wet for sheep other than some occasional opportunistic seasonal grazing. Um, but it's uh, red meat and it's, it's beef, mm-hmm. um, which on the whole has replaced the, uh, the dairy cow. Oh, Probably you, in a much more extensive system. I mean, George Eustace was suggesting that uh, sheep farmers should perhaps have some beef as well. Is that going to undermine everything with his brilliant plan? I think that was uh, an off-the-cuff, ill-timed, not very well-thought-out comment. That's very kind of you. <laughs> How many times did he say it? It was, you know, it's, it's one of those moments where you have, obviously, I think his phrase is the lamb, uh, the sheep industry has mm. got some room for readjustment, which I'm sure they'll help with. And uh, maybe they should, you know, you mistimed it by saying put some beef in there. But underlyingly, there has to be, if there's less sheep, someone's got to do something to make an income. And inevitably, there will be more beef. Uh, not, well, not necessarily. I, if Short term. Short term, a change in system is, if, you, if you're looking at a lot of the sheep as produced on the uplands, their alternative options are limited. One of the biggest problems with this comment is, A, the beef market has been in doldrums until this last six months for about four years. Yeah. Sheep farms are set up predominantly with animals outwintered. Mm. Beef has to be housed, so there's capital, there's, it's a whole system change, and it doesn't happen overnight. No. It's the dynamic of change. You, you're sitting looking at this and you're mm. going, I'm strategically planning for you know mm. whatever your plans are with the farm when you retire. But how do you see it? I'm a little bit younger than you, but we're of the same era. And I'm looking at the future. My, my view is cereals will largely still be produced on block in East Anglia because we've got the soil type that gives us the yield that encourages mm. us to do it. Albeit there'll be less acres planted because there'll be some lovely flowers and things and you know corners and bits will be taken out. So there'll be less actual productive land, but largely we will still be producing. Where do animals fit within our system? If you haven't got the investment already in place, will it just not happen? And what happens to the rest of the country? Will they just drop cereal prices and that solves our problems? I I can't work it out myself. I shouldn't worry about not being able to work it out, Andrew, because you're not by yourself. The whole industry at the moment is staring at a major agrarian reform, root and branch, and then that's internal, Mm. where we're going to move the direct payments across into the environment, animal welfare... Um, nature recovery. Um, at the same time, I trade in circumstances externally, whether it's with Europe or whoever, are changing. So there's business impacts there. I, I think that the biggest issue at the moment is uncertainty based upon uh, we know change is coming. That's the only certain thing. Um, but it's it's the uh, the detail that we're not aware of. The only detail we know at the moment is that the agricultural transition period starts this next year. And the only other thing we know is it'll be three years at least before the alternate funding streams, environmental land management systems, actually open for application. And it's not going to be straight swap because two elements of the new scheme are going to be competitive. Mm. I should imagine what will happen is that we're going to have a bit of a dislocation and disconnect in our farm business cash flows because of that, is that... Some marginal land that post-EU membership, CAP originally brought, which was traditionally not in arable production, got converted. I should imagine a lot of that will either go back to environmental schemes, Mm -hmm. 
that may be managed with livestock or may not, or may end up going back into livestock production. But I think that will be more farms that have existing livestock enterprises utilising the livestock to do that, mm. less than new entrants. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of uncertainty, but there'll be opportunities. Listen, opportunities mm. exist in a closed world. I set up mm. a grain trading business mm. in a time when the grain business was just going out of business. There wasn't people going mm. in the opposite direction. So I, I get seeing opportunity and, and having a crack at it. It's just, you know, there, there are issues. There's gut instincts. At this moment, if you planted trees this year, would it be less advantageous than planting trees in three years' time where they reward you for planting trees? Or would they recognise that you planted trees three years ago and go, oh, you've got trees there and you put them mm. in. We'll give you just as much money as the man who's just bought some new saplings. You know, are they going to come up with a howler? that doesn't reward people who are thinking forwards or who are actually now addressing the issues of you know carbon capture or whatever? I think any decision is only good as, as information on which you base it. At the moment, the information is not that great. There's testing trials have been ongoing for 18 months for the ELMS scheme, which now move into the pilot phase, and that's going to feed into to the new structures. The government knows it doesn't have a resource to do this in-house single-handedly, so the, the buzzword is co-designing with the industry. Tree planting is a it's a landscape thing. Mm. There's a, two elements to it. One is it's a massive commitment for 25 years plus if it's going to bring to fruition the, the outcomes that you're aiming for. And the other thing is, is with that long-term commitment towards land change, there's a capital uh, impact as well yeah. in the change of land value. So I, I personally would get involved with all the pilots, the consultations, the trials, to get as well-informed as possible to feed into your decision-making. But I I will not implement anything until the financial elements are, are determined as well. Yeah, so if if you were a young man just coming into this farm and you were 30 years old Mm. and you were confronted with the same set of Mm. of issues, you would do exactly the same thing. You would take wise advice, read, learn what you can, don't commit Mm. to planting that field over there into a load of oak because the land value will diminish instantly and they'll never let you pull it down if you planted it sort of mentality. Or, you know, you, you, you would be waiting and seeing before you leapt. Any business development, you, you go through the same strategic thought process about your constraints, what your limitations financially, management, and, and build around it. And that's particularly important when you've got the major restructuring reforms that our industry is going to be going through. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I think this is, you know, for the kind of Christmas time podcast, this is as serious as we get. But yeah. as my ex-wife used to call you, you were quite foreboding, weren't you? I thought it, it's supposed to be Christmas, and I, I thought that was just a little bit below the belt, Mr. Dewey. Uh, that refers back to when your first wife used to occasionally do the milk recording, and the days when I was relief milking, I would milk record with her. I was foreboding because being the relief milkman, I had to concentrate, which didn't mean that I was communicated that well with my milk recorder, obviously. Good. <laughs> I just wanted to get that out there. I mean, there's, 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 I haven't not having not seen you. I mean, this year's been great for no mm. one seeing anybody at any point. Mm. So you, you play catch mm. up, and this is the, the, one of the beauties of the podcast, Lewis, is mm. prosperity, which is you know, there's some there's some fabulous stories that have come out of people, mm. and there's some experience. I had, I had a conversation with a chap called Jeremy Savage about the grain markets mm. a few weeks ago, and some of that stuff is absolutely priceless. And, mm. and he's come back and said he, he loves it, and his children love it, and all these people, all oh, mm. and it's captured forever. And so, so little things where you have happy memories with mm. people, mm. if they sneak out. 
they're recorded forever. And, um, you know, there's, there, are, there are, because of the, the nature of the fact that not only were we neighbours, we also played at the same rugby club before mm. you took up refereeing. And therefore, I've got a little story I'd like to just tell you, which I've, I have mentioned to you before. When I first, you mentioned my footballing skills mm. and frowning at it. When I first took up rugby, it was 1988. I was 26 years old. I'd never played rugby. And I went to pre-season training at North Walsham, which is a very much a farmer's club. So all of the superstar rugby players up there and all of the not-quite-so-superstar guys. Rugby boys, I thought they're big and tough and strong. Anyway, we did a, a training exercise. Some of the stuff I couldn't, didn't have a clue what was going on, you know, running into bags and goodness knows what else they were doing, pushing and shoving each other and, like, you know, not going down and crying like footballers do. Uh, and then at the end of the session, we had to run round the, the pitches three times, two or three times. And so if we started running, you know, and uh, the, the level of fitness of rugby players versus footballers is infinitely less. I was... Apps, I stuffed everybody except for one man, and that was you. You're the only bloke who beat me in that run. And it, I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to catch him on this bit. I just couldn't catch you. So that irritated me. <laughs> it, yeah, it pleased me enormously. <laughs> the other memory from a rugby perspective, other than your dry observations, was with that rugby game, I mentioned it before, that we put the mics on, where you turned to refereeing, and you'd been playing with the Walsham boys, and an incident occurred, and one of our previous club captains was... Can I interject there? Yeah. It was veterans' floodlit midweek rugby that I was asked back to, back to North Walsham to referee. Ah. And one of our very prominent ex-captains, Mr Simon Rossi, disagreed with the decision that you made, and he wasn't the captain of the side, and he went, oh, Lewis, for goodness sake. And I loved it. It was just one of those moments where you went, um, excuse me, Captain North Walsham, would you mind having a word with your number 13, please? And tell him that he can speak to me via you and only via you. <laughs> 10 yards. And he gave away 10 yards. And Rossi went, oh, another 10 yards. And it was like, shut up, Simon. <laughs> that was funny. It was, yes. <laughs> and the other thing is, if he had been captain, I still wouldn't have tolerated him speaking to me like that. Anyhow. No, so. I didn't get that. We didn't play together much because you actually took to refereeing and I literally just took the game up. Yeah. The other question I think will come to the fore is how you obviously haven't got a Norfolk accent. No. So talk us through how you got from... Where did you start up, Lewis? I was born in the old West Riding of Yorkshire, which is now South Yorkshire, in a mining village called Cudworth, four or five miles from Barnsley. I had always an interest in, in animals and farming. I used to hang around farms and farmyards believing I was being helpful at the time, which I probably wasn't. I started keeping animals of my own commercially in my mid-teens, pigs and poultry whilst I was still at school. What, at the local farm? or in No, I hired some buildings and I talked one of my older brothers into bankrolling me. I had a plan. That included some further education. And then when I was about 16, school sent for mother and said I was capable of going much further than where I was planning to go. Was that mining? No, I was going to go into farming. Predominant employment was mining and glassworks at yeah. the time. And those two industries are on the Barnsley coat of arms, so you can tell how predominant they were. And basically the headmistress, who I didn't think actually noticed that I was at the school, <laughs> but she must have had some good intelligence, said to me that I was capable of far greater and I ought to concentrate on academics rather than missing school on Tuesdays to sell pigs in Doncaster Market, which <laughs> I didn't think anyone had missed me, but they had. Yeah. So I actually changed schools and did A-levels. Mm -hmm. Pigs and poultry had to go. Mm -hmm. And then I did some work experience. I left school at 18 on Friday, and by Sunday afternoon I was living in a caravan in a farmyard on a farm in Mid-Wales. 
Right. And I've never been back to live at home since. And then I uh, I went to Harper Adams. Was that a year? Or I had a year there, and okay. then I, I did some work elsewhere. I always used to. And did you get into Harper before? So you had a year, you already got in, and you knew you were going the next year, or did you? At that time, if you went from a farming <coughs> background, it was compulsory that you did at least a year's work experience before you okay. started your course. So I had a couple of years there, which made me a more mature student as well. <laughs> yeah, some of the stories have come out, Lewis, and some people might dispute that. And Harper, you loved, didn't you? I mean, that was. Oh, I, I, it was a fantastic experience. And you met Fran when you were there, wasn't I it? did, I did. Yeah. My background was from which I came. I don't harp about it. It shaped me, but it didn't dictate my life. It wasn't as happy as it could be. But as soon as I, I started my career path, yeah. things just took off, and Harper was a fantastic springboard for me. Yeah. Yeah. Different uh, ways of looking at things, people with a different outlook yeah. and different expectations. Yeah, you know. lifelong friends uh, <clears throat> from that. I got involved in my rugby. I became captain in my second year. Did you uh, play rugby at school? I, I didn't play rugby until I was 16 when I changed schools to my own Yeah, level. you see, this is... I went to a, a local state school in Norfolk and the aspirations of that was to basically work at Cantley Factory if you were lucky or maybe a sports shop, I think my career teacher told me. And you aimed at the floor, you know, which is either straight down or across the room and you might hit the skirting board. And as you learn over the years mixing with people who've maybe been to better schools, maybe had a bit more opportunity in life, that isn't where you have to end up, is it? Yeah, there's other ways of doing things. I think out of all adversity, something positive transpires if you keep your mind and your eyes yeah, open. Yeah, exactly. Your eyes open and it's like, hang on, I don't have to do that, do I? It's a different way. Rugby was superb for me. I can remember going to football, playing for a Norwich side, Nuts and Andrews, mm-hmm. and being in the changing room. And at the end of the game, there was a lad, he was talking about torching a car. He said, you know, nick a car and then you get rid of the evidence. I said, oh. he said, how do you think you do it then? I said, well, you light an old rag and put it in the petrol thing and run away. They all laughed at me. They all knew that was wrong. Apparently you have to do a much more thorough job than that by putting oil and petrol around the inside of the car and the outside. Oh, now, now I know. But I remember coming away from that and thinking, wow, this isn't really what I want to do with my weekends. And I kind of, I don't want to aspire to learn how to torture a car. The difference between a, a football dressing room and a rugby dressing room, it's just it's a different world. So aspirations as, you know, a rugby captain, you are the only person allowed to speak to the ref, aren't you? Yeah, there's traditions there that are... Character building. Yeah, the, the healthy and respectful, the determined values. And that's why I particularly enjoyed, when I was a rugby referee for Norfolk and Eastern Counties, my great love was refereeing youth. I used to go down to under-15s, but I used to really enjoy my Sundays refereeing youngsters because there's no cynicism in the game and, and yeah. the, the learning respect and to each other as well as the match officials. You can enjoy yourself and play hard. Mm. Yeah, there's not people with a mortgage and a nagging wife and kids that are whining that get so bitter and twitter they start punching people. Oh, no, <laughs> see, the, the other thing is there's traditions and expectations even upon the people who stand and watch. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So from, you know, the Harper, the rugby, the different mm. mindset, the you know, the world's opening up for you, how did you get to... I believe it's when you started going out with Fran, is it? Yeah, it's when I met Fran. I first came to Norfolk in 77. I did a harvest here when I was still a student. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to go into farm management. So I was one of a group of my cohort that actually went into farm management in the days when there was assistant farm manager roles. And I went to work for a very large farming company, G.D. Strawson Farming, based in Nottinghamshire. Mm -hmm. Although we had land in Lincolnshire, Nottinghamshire and East Yorkshire. I was based in Nottinghamshire for about nine months and I became a manager and I moved up to Yorkshire, East Yorkshire mm-hmm. and oversaw the farms there. Uh, that was all 
combinable crops, mm. which is odd for me because my background was Animal. livestock. Yep. And there lies a tale and how life can twist on a on fate. Mm-hmm. If I look back, some of the key elements for me was key people mm-hmm. who saw that I was capable of far better than I was likely to achieve mm-hmm. and gave me a push in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And when I was leaving Harper, I applied for two jobs. One was in Hampshire, which is a livestock and arable farm. They've got sheep, dairy, beef from the dairy herd and a very large arable operation. It was the job for me. There's a postal strike. Right. And G.D. Strawson contacted me by telephone and got someone to get me to go to the telephone box to speak to them and asked me to go for an interview. The Hampshire job responded by post and it got stuck in a, a mail strike and I'd accepted the Strawson farming job Okay. by the time they got in touch with me. So a simple thing like that just sends your life. And, and the Strawson job was... Because I, I remember you talking about when I was giving you my wise ideas on grain trains. Well, hang on, Sonny, I've been, you know, I've been helping people load boats at the last minute for years. You can't yeah, tell Yeah, and we used to <clears throat> do a lot of storage. We were an intervention store. Mm. We were trading on the Baltic Exchange at the time, which used to sort of be a bit frightening. In Nottinghamshire, we used to drive tens of thousands of tonnes of rape. Farmers were into rape, but they didn't want to deal with rape that wasn't dry. So we so they, they weren't growing rape in this county at that time? No, no. And our farming business at that point, we used to do a lot of land high and grow people's break crop because they wanted a break crop, but they were frightened of growing rape. Hmm. They started growing the rape themselves. We used to dry it for one of the major merchants because we weren't far from the A1. And I stayed there for about two and a half years, three years. And then France parents said, would I come and run the family farm? So I, uh, I thought about it and I accepted the job. And his friend said, well, if you accept the job, we can get married, can't we? Sorry. Yeah, she's something like that, that girl. Yeah, she's straight in. Yeah. yeah, that's her plan. I could see that. No, that's what, which is great. And hence, here you are and hence we know each other. But I mean, that since then, this farm with you guys moving into the main hall, the way things have unfolded, it's a good place to live your life. Oh, it's fantastic. I've lived longer in Norfolk than I've lived anywhere else. And people still, you know, tease you about not having a Norfolk accent and stuff like that, or... Don't I have a Norfolk accent? No, it's not quite... I've become a non-person. Can you do a Norfolk? Can you? I'll do I can, it. yes, but not in front of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> when I go back to Yorkshire, they think I've got a peculiar accent. They don't know where I come from. So I've become a non-person. Yeah, well, I, I do my own Yorkshire one, but it sounds nothing like you. So I, yeah. I'm thinking... Well, anyway, so I, I'm quite happy with my Yorkshire accent, but, yeah, I'm sure people from Yorkshire... Aren't, although... My wife does a brilliant Yorkshire accent. Does she? She thinks it's highly amusing. <laughs> well, I mean, I've done such a good Yorkshire accent. I've had two Yorkshiremen who I hadn't met before bought me beer. How about that? Now, you've bought me plenty of beer, but that you yeah, knew I'm me. Atypical. <laughs> yeah, typical. You know, there's people in Yorkshire who listen to the Doing Grain podcast because obviously Norfolk's such a cutting edge county. No, no, I, you know, Norfolk. Norfolk takes some unfair stick from that point of view. All I can say is, I Norfolk's been very kind to me. Let's address it, you know, as a, an adopted son, you know, you are a... No, sorry, that's a bit presumptuous. The word is tolerated. Now you see, there's my point. You were part of the scenery. You've been here for 40-odd years, haven't you? Yeah. And that is enough, is it not? You In the agricultural scene, in the cow sector, massively involved with the Agricultural Association. You are a deputy lieutenant yeah. of the county. Yeah. That's an unbelievable honour bestowed on a Norfolk person. Isn't it? You, there you are, a very important man. Yeah, it is. Now, actually, I, I think it's a massive privilege. It is in itself a little bit of an acknowledgement and a request to continue doing what you have been doing. But when I was president of Norfolk Young Farmers, 
Yeah. I would always say to young farmers, get involved. Because my experiences from my, I don't like calling them humble, but different beginnings. I always wanted to uh, get involved in things. And I often used to put my name forward and then afterwards think, why have I done that? But actually, putting yourself forward and getting involved in Norfolk farming has produced people who have given a lot back to their industry and community mm. traditionally. And I think that's a fantastic thing. And by getting involved, you get seen. Yeah. And by being seen, opportunities will come up. You will not know it at the time, but it will open, potentially can open doors. Someone yeah. sees you and your name gets remembered and an opportunity will come along and... Uh, your name will get remembered. You'll be given an opportunity. And the great thing of all the opportunities, irrespective of what I've been involved with, the one thing, all the things I've been involved with, is it gives you the opportunity to meet some fantastic people and get to learn their stories. You can learn so much from other people's stories. Yeah, uh, well, the podcast is teaching me that, Lewis. I will also say that you are the master of understatement because I'm fully aware that there's probably about 50 other things that you've been involved with and my podcast, I don't do research. I just turn up, turn on the mics, so I explain to you because I think it creates a better conversation. The dynamic is more relaxed. But, you know, I'm aware of, you know, the drainage board stuff. And I can't, you know, you're not going to say out loud and reel them off. But I know that you've done a phenomenally large amount of stuff for lots of people for lots of years. So I think where I'd like to kind of end the thing, we're, we're heading to the end of this year. It's been what you can only describe as a difficult year. I don't think farmers have had a tougher year as... Lots of the people in the rest of the country. I've got a lot of people who are shutting up shop this week because they've had a tough year. And I'm a little bit niggled by that, I've got to say. Agriculture doesn't cover itself in glory at moments like this. Mm. It has been difficult for Spud Boys getting the last mm. bit out. It hasn't been that complex, has it? It hasn't been that difficult. It's been a tough yielding year. It was a difficult spring, etc. But as we head into the end of this year, do you feel sort of done over by it or fed up with it? Or where are you at with it? No, I think... There's a touch of deja vu. We we went into harvest knowing it's going to be disappointing because of what happened in the previous autumn, winter. Mm. The last thing we wanted was a dry spring, hot summer, which gave us the yields that didn't. Everyone wanted to draw a line underneath it and start from afresh. And hey ho, September the 25th, we had a storm and we probably ended up in a worse position than the previous autumn. Yeah, It is what it is, we've got to deal with it. My and Fran's overriding sentiment about reflecting on this year is there has been some positives to take out of it and I think the most common comment we've made is how fortunate we are yeah where we live what we do yeah and the impacts of COVID-19 have been minimal for us socially it's been much quieter diary the meetings disappeared and but Compared to others, we consider ourselves incredibly fortunate. In the normal scheme of things, I consider myself to be very fortunate. But looking at some of the things that people have had to deal with during this last year, by comparison, we've been very fortunate. Yeah, Yeah, I think agriculture has avoided job losses largely. And And looking back, agriculture has always had challenges and it's always had uncertainty. Mm. Which is an occupational hazard. It, It is, and it comes along. The problem at the moment is it's massively it's root and branch it's everything yeah Yeah. it's like a perfect storm and that is what's worrying people but i go back to 1979 when i left harper and we used to have a catalogue called the catamountain i can't remember why they called it that it was a student magazine produced once a year it's put all the reports in and everything used to go in there and the principal used to write the forward 
And his message to leaving students were, your education and training at Harper has prepared you well for the challenges and the uncertainty that lie ahead. It was ever thus the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think with that, I think we'll sign off. Before we sign off... Oh. <laughs> one recollection of Andrew Dewing... Oh, I thought I was going to get away with this. Yeah, OK, this has got to be good. And my uh, recollection is taking, taking Andrew Dewing home <laughs> in a wheelbarrow because he was incapacitated to the point where he couldn't walk. Yep. The only reason I ever forgave him for it was it because it was his stag night. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, I didn't feel well the next day. I can remember coming back from yours on several occasions and you had a dinner party where there was Laurie was there and Alison and Mary and I and I think Jeff Williamson was there, mm-hmm. I can't remember, and Robin Baines was there. And we were, one, getting drunk on very good quality port, which is really kind of you. That was a Christmas present from my wife that you all drank. Yeah. (laughs) Which bottle? Anyway, and I can remember we all, we decided to sing Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf. We were all having, given the sleeve to read the words off back in the day and belting them out. And the sleeve was handed to Robin. And Robin hadn't, you know, he's like, I don't know know this song, I don't know these words. So he he tries desperate to get in the spirit of it. And so it gets to the bit where he starts to sing and he suddenly came out with this absolutely amazing, is it baritone voice? Boom! Totally not how Meatloaf sang it, but it was like, whoa! (laughs) That guy's little old Robin's frame and he was like booming it out and it was... uh, those were the days, eh? God. Well, I when, I, then. when I was at Harpen, formed a rugby choir, we invited Robin as a non-rugby player. And at our first rehearsal, I said to it, Robin, you're throwing everyone out, you're singing out of key, to which the conductor said, he is the only one that is on key. <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a shocker. Anyway, okay. Mike, are we, are we clear now? The wheelbarrow story's gone. The wheelbarrow The foreboding story's one's gone. gone. We're square. We're square. That'll yeah. do. Lewis, great. Thank you for coming on. And I wish... You and everyone else, happy Christmas and a healthy new year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.